This is Keywords and I'm Zoe Cummins. This is our final episode in the series and all of our writing and recordings are prompted by the sea. I'm here walking along the shoreline in Wicklow, trying to get a blast of fresh air, even though it's a really cold February day. In this episode, you're going to hear work by Clodagh Wolf, Sarah Keating, Gary Brown, Thomas Mixon, Mabel Menensa, Henrietta McCurvey and Michelle Walsh. But first, we're going to take a visit to the other side of Ireland, to Cape Clear Island with radio producer Regan Hutchins, where he meets farmer and fisherman Michael John Cadogan. They're looking out over a really treacherous stretch of the sea called the Gascon-on-Sand, where they await a coming storm. You see that rock there that's just with the edge of the land there, Regan? You see it just sticking sticking up there now? That's the Gascon on on the the stretch of water between Cape and Shurkin, which is next island, is known as the Gascon on Sound. And it's dangerous. Well, it can be. It, it certainly can be dangerous. I mean, if you have particular types of weather, it can be very dangerous because you have a four or five knot tide, and depending on how the weather is, if we have southerly wind with a flat tide, can be extremely dangerous. So you really want to know what you are at when you're dealing with the Gashkin on sound sometimes. And it looks so peaceful now. Yesterday, but you come there tomorrow and you'll see how peaceful it will be. That's one invitation we won't accept. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say you'd better off standing here or... A Ghanaian was a gannet, a wheelin was a, was a gull, Uricon Og, which was a carbon now, I think. The older generation were much more aware of, of, of the birds. I would imagine they were more aware of them than what the people are today. Looking at the sea, if you've seen a lot of gulls inland, it's a sign that the weather is very rough or that you're getting rough weather because they have to come ashore to really live, I suppose, when there's very rough weather there because they'd have to go a big distance out to sea or they wouldn't be able to fish, let me say, like ourselves. So if you look at the gannet then, the gannet was a very interesting bird. He flew and he dived when he saw the fish, so he had extremely good sight. If the gannet was flying high and, and dived after something, it meant that the fish were down deep. If he was flying low and dived, it meant that they were up, shallower up, or dropped close to the surface. People had to watch nature much more before because they seemed to be much better clued into weather conditions than we ever were, nature. I mean, the birds fish. You know, the weather has a big effect on those. So someone that was fishing, he would know how fish were behaving and he'd say, look, there's something going wrong here. There are no fish available today and there should be, or, you know, we'd be expecting more fish today. And that normally gave an indication that there was a change coming. very moment, I mean, the way we're being warned about uh, the storm that's coming along. Most people are well aware of what's happening, so they have secured buildings or anything that they thought that might be, you know, vulnerable. We would hope to weather the storm. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I hope you do. <laughs> well, that's our hope. That's our hope anyway. Well, I hope that we all survive the storm. Our relationship with the sea has changed over the years from a kind of unknown folkloric place to a place of work uh, for sailors and fishermen and now a place for leisure, for health, for fun. Right now along the beach there are dog walkers and a couple of paddlers and a, a brave swimmer on a very cold February day. I can just see one woman's head bobbing out of the water. And in fact, all around Ireland on almost every day of the year you can find people clambering over rocks and dunes and piers and into the water. Here is Cloda Wolf on one of her weekly swims. It's Saturday morning, it's Dublin. I'm going for my weekly swim. I'm really looking forward to it this morning. It's still. The sky is grey but the sea looks turquoise. I'm going to get in now, I'm going to get my togs on. Take my shoes off. The ground is so cold, it's wet. The concrete feels so cold under my feet. That'll make getting in all the easier. My feet will be already cold. Right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. Push forward and down. Shoulders down, blow, 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 swim, blow. And there I was, in, moving around the water. The water moving around me, supporting me, slowing me down, slowing my heart rate down, slowing my mind down. The sun sparkled on the sea. There was a mythical shimmer and a swish of a mermaid's tail. No, that didn't really happen. But if it did, it wouldn't have felt at odds. It's really hard to identify people and distinguish people down here. It's everybody and anybody. You don't know why everybody is swimming, whether it's to escape some stress, an hour's break from a busy life for children. Everyone is here for a reason. You just have to commit to it. I can't go slowly, I just have to get in and commit and go. If you stop, it's a sign of weakness, or I feel. Okay, right foot, I go. Left foot. Right foot. Left foot. I go to the salty waters, the cold waters. My skin prickled, my organs froze, my head said, Jesus, get out. But the sea held me. Stay a while, don't go. Stay a while, don't go. Slow down. So I did. And I bobbed around. The swimmers swam past me. The seasoned dippers walked in, the pros. Into the people's soup, as my friend calls it. Silky waters, deep waters. Oh my God, it's so cold on my neck. On my shoulders, that's the worst bit. Once they're cold, though, then it's okay, they numb. I'm numb now, it feels lovely. It's like little champagne bubbles underneath my skin. There's an Irish word to describe this, and I love it. It's called iruk, the salt water on your skin and that feeling of numbness, but warmth, yet cold. There were no waves today, just lulling, swaying water holding me there, gently moving my arms and legs. It feels so nice, so free. Migrating geese fly above in messy formation. Then the sea decided my time was up, and I got cold. Out I got, right foot up, left foot up, hold the railings and pull myself up as the sea played with me and tried to pull me back. Okay, I'm gonna get out now. 
I'm pink. I'm pinky brown. I'm a lovely colour. And I'm done. I'm done for today. I dried and walked on, unsure if I would be back. I really enjoyed it, don't get me wrong, but unsure if I would do it again. It was hard, it was cold, it was wet. So I walked on, me and my wet towel and my wet togs. I licked my hand to see if it tasted of salt. It did, but I did go back the very next day and the next and the next and I'm still going back. And the sea unconditionally welcomes me and takes away my stresses, my worries, carries them off down the coast and into the Gulf Stream and into the Atlantic, or so I imagine. And every day the sea gives me a parting kiss as I climb out. I have a choice now, to stop, to slow down, or not to. See you tomorrow. Clodagh Wolf braving the cold February sea there. She spoke about how each person is drawn to the sea for different reasons. In our next piece, Gary Brown writes about his wife's daily swims. They help her deal with caring for her elderly parents as her mother slips deeper into dementia and her father tries to keep on going. The sea seems to claim them all, as Gary says, like wrecks to its depths. She sidles in, slowly at first, to get used to the pain of her progress. A pain of relief from what's to come or what has already been. Every day is different, with every flow comes a coldness that calms, for now. The next wave passes, but pass it will, but not for him. Sometimes it's the innocent giddiness for past remembered places. A smile, a name, rarely hers, but sometimes. It's moments now that don't return, lost like wrecks to the depths. So she swims into a momentary pain of pleasure released by ripples of energy, replenishing something she knows she's losing with every visit. Often as on a white horse comes the farmer's daughter, daddy's girl, swirling, surging on the surf, then crashes over the seawall to escape to nowhere. Sometimes like a sentinel he stands, Cupid's canute against a sea that love alone cannot withstand. So she swims. In our next piece, Commemorate Me Where There Is Water, writer Sarah Keating reflects on the role of water in her life and the time her uncle came to stay with her family. In the December of my 17th year, my uncle came to live with us in our cramped, busy house close to the Grand Canal. He slept on a pull-out couch in the advent-darkened living room. The shutters remained closed during the day, and when the door opened, the sour, acrid smell of alcohol and tobacco leached out into the hall. With the TV out of bounds, I spent the evenings walking along the canal with one of my sisters, sheltered from the wind by the winter-weeping boughs of the willow trees. We would walk as far as the statue of Patrick Kavanagh, where we sat benchside, smoking stolen cigarettes as rats scuttled in the reeds and swans tucked their black faces into their wings and ambulances screeched their siren call. Help is on the way. In those days, there were no barges or kayaks or paddleboarders on the water. The canal was a poisonous vein dividing the South City. Not a life source, but a death trap, and we were constantly warned about its dangers. Drowning, typhus, the plague... Once, fooling around on a tyre we had optimistically fashioned as a swing above the water, I fell into the murky shallows. 
Knowing the trouble I would get into at home, a worldly friend brought me back to the top floor flat that she shared with her glamorous mother a few doors up. She let us in with her key and bathed me and dried me and dressed me in her clothes like I was one of her dolls. Sitting on the fold-out couch bed in our living room, knees near his ears, my uncle reminded me of a doll. When he raised his eyes, they were vacant, his skin glazed with the dead umber glow of the alcoholic. I don't remember talking to him during the three months he camped out on and off with us, but I do remember the silence of our packed house when he was in residence. And I remember too the bird bright alarm of the police knocking the morning that he was found dead on the rocks at Sandy Cove Beach. A dawn low tide had gently washed his body towards the shore with the promise of its comforting susurrus hush. Your suffering is at an end. Growing up between the canals, the coast wasn't part of my personal geography of the city. But before his demise, my uncle, a jeweller by trade, dwelled in the salubrious seaside suburbs of South County Dublin. On celebration days, my family would pile into our old jalopy and make the journey out to his mountainside mansion, where the light gold BMW he drove as a taxi in the last year of his life would be parked on the long gravel drive. Making our way out of the inner city, past UCD, we would often get lost on what were then still country roads. It felt like a different world out there. I don't ever remember seeing the sea. I live close to my uncle's old house now, and occasionally I find myself driving by, sometimes accidentally, sometimes when I am in a pensive, backward-looking mood. A different family lives there now. My uncle has been dead for more than 20 years. The house is as big and grand as I remember, its face turned to the Dublin mountains, its back turned dismissively to the coast. From the top of the main road, you can see very clearly the blue horizon of Dublin Bay. Most mornings, I swim close to the spot where my uncle died. I climb down a ladder that looks out towards the pigeon houses and the shining incinerator at Ring's End. Despite the lure of the unspoiled landscape to the south, I find myself swimming towards the city before turning back to the coast. The waves battering the rocks during winter's high tides or gently licking the seawall in summer. The water so different from the stagnant waters of the canal that define my childhood. In summer, I mostly swim with friends, but in late winter, I often find myself swimming on my own, thinking of my uncle's lonely death in the freezing February waters of the Irish Sea. Sarah Keating's writing highlights that sort of confusion of danger and beauty that's always there in the sea. It's abundant and it's vast and it's kind of lonely. And there's something about standing at the edge of the sea that makes you feel pretty tiny thinking about the dramatic forces of storms and everything shifting. And as the sand and pebbles wash up onto the beach, you think of the sediments that build up on the seabed and how they kind of write the story of the earth. A really epic tale of metal and bone and shell and, of course, now plastic. All ground down and swishing back and forth on the seabed. The sea for me always feels like a beginning and an end. And our next piece 
Thomas Mixon's poem speaks to where life and also maybe love start. Tidal moves along the coast, surrounded not by water anymore, but by another person, holding tight to unexpected desire. You aren't the one who said, you aren't the one I want. Some former life, when I had spines and you had blades, and we were new as worms, inching over ancient markings on a broken bowl, under dirt, calcite bound. You aren't the one I dreamed, falling asleep, my paltry dreams confounding me, limiting the raft I masted to the bay, taunted by the sea, as waves are needed for the undertow. I require salt stinging my eyes to recognize you aren't afraid of what I want, which is you, everything you are and aren't. The one thing that I want, apart from you, is some technology to fossilize our footprints on the beach, areas of sand roped off imprudently, the stanchions marking just how far we've come. We used to haunt the fissures by anemones, the cracks between the rock pool's flora, cyclic habitats that we refuse to think of as our home. We were someplace separate, someplace dark, within eyesight of the shore, but lost. In Mabel Menenza's poem, Land Meets Sea, we encounter the snake-like South African river goddess Mamlambo. She's seductive and terrifying. She grants wishes, but includes unknown conditions. In Devil I Be, Mamlambo answers the author's wish for a relationship, but in exchange drowns the female self. Too many times upon a time where land is overrun by the sea. It waves its powerful wand, says devil I be. Rolls out the woman I should be. Cloned, canned, conned. It rips out my heart that day I protest. The arms, legs and brains I try contest. Of me, what remains is little grains so close to see, built into female perfect humility. A cute, vast emptiness where myself once was. I try to find my heart's beat, but the great Barbie neighs and roars over the answer to my sores and sings. Hush, little one, now gone are your flaws. Now you can go find a man to fill up all your holes. We travel now with writer Henrietta McCurvey along well-trodden shorelines via shipwrecks and the shipping news to emerge through the fog at the edge of the world. 
I'm full sure that if I'd been born 500 years ago, hell, even 300 years ago, I'd have been the one standing on the beach, shouting at the schooner setting sail, warning the crew not to go. Jesus, man, I picture myself yelling at the captain. Don't you know what that line in the distance is? It's the end of the world. Packing a box of lines and a change of underpants and taking off like it's no big deal is madness, I'd shout. And don't come crawling back to me when you fall off the edge and die. The other day I went for a walk on Sandy Mount Strand. In the car park, instead of looking out at Dublin Bay, there was fog. Fog so thick I couldn't see the sea. What colour is the sea when you can't see it? I bet it was a rich, phlegmy green. That colour that becomes paler and paler the closer you get. The ESB towers and the green strip of nature reserve were invisible. The swimming spot on the Southwall Pier was invisible. I remember being here last January and it made me sad because old Christmas trees were piling up in a corner, discarded and desiccated, leaving only a faint, tired pine smell, often lost under the sewagey stink from the other side of the beach. When I was a child, I was fascinated by sea mysteries. The Bermuda Triangle, the Marie Celeste. What a story. I know there are plenty of rational theories to explain an abandoned, well-stocked ship floating alone across the ocean, but the irrational ones are far more enticing. In the fog, I imagined, what if a deserted ship floated into view? What if I heard a strange music, a sea shanty, a siren song, a mermaid lured onto painful land, her newly grown feet burning with every step? Ten years ago, I won the Maeve Binchy UCD travel bursary and spent a few months exploring the 31 sea areas of the shipping forecast, either by land, sea or through their folklore and history. I remember clearly the flight from Exeter to Hughtown on the Isles of Scilly on a 17-seater plane. I stared out the window, wondering did the shadows on the water below suggest long-lost shipwrecks. One of the world's most famous shipwrecks occurred there early in the 1700s. The wonderfully named Sir Cloudsley Shovel, Admiral of the Fleet, was sailing home in the HMS Association after yet another skirmish with the French when thick fog closed in on them. The story goes that one of the crew was local and recognised that they were heading for the Isles of Scilly, not Plymouth. Shovel just had time to have the man hanged for inciting mutiny before the entire fleet hit the rocks. Only one of the 2,000 strong crew survived. Rumour persisted for many years that Shovel did make it to land alive, but was murdered by a local woman for his priceless emerald ring and, in some versions, his shirt. It was decided that this disaster occurred because the sailors could not correctly estimate their longitude and, as a result, the Board of Longitude was set up at Greenwich in London. I remember, too, going to the Shetland Isles and to Unst, the most northerly point of the UK, on the same latitude as Bergen in Norway and Anchorage in Alaska an island of peaty-looking hills and water the colour of slate. I went to the most northerly point of Unst, planning to paddle out into the sea as far as I could, but there was a sign saying the water was off limits, some deadly algae attack, so close to the edge of the world and to be turned back. I turned to the sea, I turned back from the sea. I'm nearly finished my walk here along this gorgeous stretch of beach and it kind of fittingly brings us to the end of this episode and series of keywords. Our final piece is Nana's Lights by Michelle Walsh. 
And in it, she picks out the familiar markers a few miles north of where I'm walking here now on the shore of Dublin Bay, the Poolbeg Towers. I found it on a January morning after a walk on the beach in Sandy Mount in the grey half-light of winter. It was the red frame that caught my eye. I stopped and stared at a picture of the Poolbeg chimney stacks in a shop window amongst an array of post-Christmas clutter. They were known in our house as Nana's Lights. Nana lived in Clontarf in a red brick semi-detached house on a corner that involved a convoluted three-point turn to park at the front gate. The house was small and boxy, but its beauty lay in the back garden, a rolling lawn three times the size of the front. Half of it turned over to growing vegetables, the other half a riot of flowers. There wasn't much room for my brothers and I to play, but it didn't matter, because at the end of the garden, a rusty gate creaked onto a lane, the likes of which I've only seen in the countryside, lined with trees and a strip of grass down the middle of a mud track. It looked like it had been created by a car driving up and down, over and over. Our imaginations ran wild there. We looked for leprechauns and fairies, chased rainbows, played hide-and-seek, and made up stories about who or what might live at the end of the lane. Going through the squeaky gate with its flaking paint felt like entering another dimension where colours were more vivid, the silence was deeper and even the air seemed heavier, sodden by the sea. Afterwards, exhausted from playing, we ate cake with Nana in the front room. Then we made the long journey home across the city, through the congested centre. There was no East Link toll bridge then. After we crossed the River Liffey, we still had to drive to the limits of the south side and climb high into the mountains to reach home. As we drove higher and higher, glimpses of Dublin Bay flickered into view. Its graceful curve gradually unfolded before our eyes. The skyline twinkled, the streetlights blinked into life, and the city seemed small from this height. The sea, lapping at its edge, looked like a blanket it could pull over itself at night to keep warm. Ready for bed in our pyjamas in the back bedroom, my two brothers and I would look out the window and search the skyline until we found the chimneys. On a clear night, they were easy to spot, but if it rained, it was harder to locate them through a gauze of misty drizzle or sheets of lashing rain. Before going to sleep, the three of us stood at the window and waved goodnight to Nana. Mum told us the winking lights on the chimneys was her way of waving back. Nana's Lights by Michelle Walsh brings us to the close of this episode and the series of keywords. Thanks to Sean Byrne and Tin Pot for the additional sound design throughout the series and Keywords is supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland Sound and Vision Scheme.